0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach innovation, entrepreneurship, and well, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Jeff Marazzo, who's the co-founder and CEO of Spark Therapeutics. Jeff, Jeff, thanks for coming in.
1: Carl, thanks for having me.
0: And you were just reminding me, you're a Wharton alum, I think both undergrad and MBA, right?
1: I'm a Penn undergrad.
0: Oh, that's right. A engineer, yeah. yeah, yeah. Even uh, but better. I was a Warden MBA. Yeah. that's right. And reminded me, I, I I feel just fine not having remembered this. But when you were a prospective student, you heard you you were in a test class with I me. Sat so. in a test class yeah.
1: and listened to a case study of uh, a group of students who worked with you to develop and create their own company. Yeah, which is an exciting yeah. uh, exciting case.
0: Yeah, we weren't as successful as Spark, but but uh, still entrepreneurship. Yeah. Them. All right, so Jeff, let's get started by having you give us the elevator pitch for Spark.
1: So Spark Therapeutics was a company that was essentially founded on the on the vision that uh, it was possible for a world to be created with no uh, limits for people with genetic diseases. Mm-hmm. and And we could do that by discovering, developing, and delivering treatments in ways that were unimaginable until now. And the technology that underpins that mission and vision, is a technology that we call gene therapy, Mm -hmm. which ultimately is the concept of taking all the information that we encoded and discovered in the Human Genome Project, the bits and bytes, the zeros and ones, if you will, of our DNA, and using that information, that code, as an active agent in a therapy and mm-hmm. delivering that code to a cell that otherwise has a defective copy or something wrong with their particular genetic yeah. code.
0: So let me ask a, a
1: dumb question.
0: Aren't aren't all diseases to some extent genetic diseases? So what, what is it that distinguishes this particular class of diseases? Yeah.
1: Well, so there are different ways to cut and, and mm-hmm. slice disease. There is certainly uh, probably in some respects uh, a way to find a genetic component underlying some or many diseases. But there are certainly environmental factors. There are pathogens like viruses that cause disease. Uh, But but we largely focus on our disorders that we would describe as monogenic. And Mm -hmm. what that means is that a single gene has something defective about it, and it causes a clear and and, uh, inextricable link with a disease that usually shows up relatively early in life and is severe and unquestionable that it was related to yep. that mutation.
0: And and it's like a, a bad piece of computer code. If you could go in and cut and paste, the, the get rid of the bug, uh, yep. the disease would go away.
1: That's right. Yeah. And there are different strategies. We may talk mm-hmm. about those today. But what we do is we actually do not go in and cut and edit that mm-hmm. code. But instead, we let the defective code sit there. Mm. Uh, but we add in a normal copy alongside it. So if you think of reading the code, your Mm -hmm. cell is reading the code and Mm -hmm. trying to use the code to make the proteins, which are our basic building blocks of Mm -hmm. healthy function, Mm -hmm. and they read the defective code and don't make the proper protein in the case of whatever genetic disease it is, at the very end, they see this extra copy that's been added in uh, through the delivery uh, and this strategy called gene therapy, and now they add at the very end the code that they see and create the proper protein.
0: Interesting. So, do most? I mean, there are very few gene therapies. I mean, relatively few. You are one of the early mm-hmm. ones. Do they all work that way? Instead of cutting, uh, cutting, copying and pasting, or clipping and 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 adding a, 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 the correct sequence they add something to the dna
1: yeah so there are different strategies Mm -hmm. uh and the category of of companies and technology called gene editing Mm -hmm. is largely focusing today more on that cutting and and replacing or snipping yeah we are in a category of companies that have traditionally been described more so as gene therapy Mm -hmm. and sometimes people will call it gene augmentation i see and that augmentation word is a, is sort of a connotation of the idea that you're adding in a normal copy of the gene. Now, people use different. The question hasn't, has been, for this genetic disease, we know that we need to add in a new set of code that they can read. There are disorders where you actually need to suppress because the code mm. actually needs to uh, not either be edited and cut mm. or you could find a way to suppress the thing that's being produced. But if you're missing something... And you need to add a normal copy of it. that gene therapy strategy uh, has been a very attractive one for a range of genetic diseases. And then the question is how do you deliver it and we can talk about how we do that, which yep. is through disarmed viruses.
0: All right, well, let's start with before we get into that, give us make real concrete for us what what diseases you're you're working on
1: yeah, yeah, so as a company, we started. Uh, life, thinking about where our technology could be most applicable, Mm -hmm. and really what that meant is where do we think the delivery strategy we had using these disarmed viruses would make most sense and where they would have the greatest chance of success. Those have focused on the retina, Mm -hmm. the liver, and the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, we have focusing on disorders that are inherited forms of blindness, hemophilia, which is a blood clotting disorder that you can go about trying to treat By expressing a gene from the liver into the circulation, into the circulatory system, Mm -hmm. or central nervous system disorders, things like Huntington's disease, for example, that you would want to directly uh, administer the the therapy to the brain.
0: Mm. Okay, so... Um, you were. We were just telling your undergraduate degrees in economics and and systems engineering. So presumably, this wasn't your senior thesis. Uh, where, do, where did this Where did this company come from, and how did you get involved? Yeah.
1: So I did start actually as an engineer uh, in bioengineering. So oh, I had did. an interest okay. uh, right. early on and, and had explored the possibility of of medicine as a career. Mm-hmm. I actually worked at the Fox Chase Cancer Center in a research lab when I was a teenager working on uh, breast cancer research. And so I had an interest in medicine, had an interest in science, and it was about finding kind of my own path in the way that I thought I could be most positively agitating in the healthcare system, which is the way I think of myself even today. And so along my journey professionally, um, I had the chance to work on and start to learn About a decade or more ago, about the the progress we were making in the Human Genome Project and the work that had come from that, and the power of using that information for diagnostics purposes Mm -hmm. and then potentially for therapeutics purposes. Um, Along that journey, uh, I had the pleasure to get to know the then CEO of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, an individual named Steve Alchler. And the, uh, the, the, origins of spark actually come from a discussion we had in late 2010 Mm. where he was looking at ways to try to diversify the sources of funding for his future research Mm. enterprise and to commercialize his research differently and i was looking to create my next job not Mm. necessarily apply for my next job i had decided that you know while i hadn't figured out exactly what i was going to do i knew i wanted to be an entrepreneur and continue Mm -hmm. to start companies that could positively agitate the healthcare system and so steve and i agreed that I would roam the halls of CHOP and see if there was anything of interest that could actually be formed into a company. And so along those those trails, I uh, met uh, a woman who was a medical doctor researcher named Kathy High, who was working on and was running a center for gene therapy research. And it was her work that formed the basis of Spark.
0: Interesting. So give us a sense i mean this is a this is a pretty unusual path for an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to start with just the idea you want to do something entrepreneurial maybe in a broad space and then go looking yep. for for the partner and for yep. the, for the uh the technology how, how how would you advise people to go about that and how did and did you look at a bunch of options or was this one just the obvious one
1: well, I did uh, in that setting of Chop. In I CHOP, did actually yeah. meet with 25 different scientists and wow. clinicians mm-hmm. and heard the range of ideas from mm-hmm. things that had to do with this idea of genomic or personal more personalized medicine mm-hmm. to ideas that had to do with radiology mm-hmm. and how you could turn radiology services into a business to other concepts that were being uh, uh, originated at CHOP. So it was a, a gamut of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one uh, stuck out pretty clearly from the rest um, in a sort of brief qualitative assessment. And I had come from a prior experience where I was part of helping start another company that was trying to introduce genetic testing into mm-hmm. clinical diagnostic practice. So I was already on this path of, of being uh, not only interested, but believing that there was going to be a tremendous amount of power and change in the medical field that was would result from our understanding at a genomic level and sort of an intracellular level, as opposed to historically, we've sort of poked and prodded to figure out what's wrong with yeah. people. Now we can actually interrogate within the cell and understand yeah. what's going on within the cell, and that that would create a, and open up a whole new era of understanding of disease and treating of disease.
0: Yeah, so I, I totally get that, Jeff, that if you were to look at the upside and the promise of this technology, it's big, big, big. Mm-hmm. But I also would look at it and think, yeah, but whoa, there's yeah. so much we got to prove to actually eventually get to yep. a, a product. So you were only looking at upside, not the not the risk return necessarily. Yeah. Well,
1: I think I... So I am someone who can see and very clearly understand the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have historically been someone that, that tries to to do a, a lot of preparation mm-hmm. in order to mitigate or hedge as best you can against those risks so so it's not as if that i was naive to them mm-hmm. maybe some of them mm-hmm. but not all of them mm-hmm. um, but what it what it seemed to me so first of all there had been some early data that had been generated in people and so it wasn't it had been there had been some evidence in about 9 patients that this application of gene therapy into the back of the eye mm-hmm seemed to actually Im- improve the functional vision of patients who were otherwise going blind and had no treatment option available to wow. them. So there was there was a, an important, what we call in the in the biotech industry, clinical de-risking event, mm-hmm. meaning they had moved from the lab into yeah. clinical trials, and there was something that was clearly happening, mm-hmm. and that was at least a starting point to begin from. Now, all the rest was still in front of us. Could you replicate that in another trial? Could you get the FDA to approve it? The big questions around, could you commercialize something that's a one-time treatment? And how is the healthcare system going to pay for that and reimburse that? How do you make and manufacture these things? Those are all things that were certainly in front of us. But to me, the, the, the potential uh, impact um, on both patients and society – let alone sort of the impact that it could have uh, for for people who are part of the, the business, shareholders and stakeholders and employees, uh, you know, made all that worth it.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a saying or I, have, I use a saying in class all the time when we talk about the depth of the need and the pain point. And at one extreme, I say, look, is this something that lets blind people see? Or is this a vitamin yeah. pill, right? Yeah. And this is something that lets blind people see, or at least prevents blindness. So it has that quality of, wow, yeah. if you could crack it,
1: yeah. this is a big deal. Yeah, It is. And so I'll tell a funny story, a great story. On the day that we went public, mm-hmm. um, there was a great article written in a, a, a well, uh, well-known uh, business journal that uh, covered the two companies that had gone public that day. And the the other company that went public was all over the the, lo, the many different television networks yeah. because they made very popular burgers. Ah. And the other one was Spark. Yeah. And Spark was the one that our headline of the public offering was that you were gonna be funding the final research to bring a treatment for patients who were going blind, who had no option, and yeah. where we were seeing evidence of restoration of sight in those patients. And so it was a great article about that dichotomy yeah. of what is the right uh, in investment uh, in burgers or or helping solve blindness.
0: Yeah, it's really awesome. Um, so talk a little bit about the formation of this business. Um, what were your? Did you do your MBA? Uh, I was here from 2006 to 2008. Okay. So a guy who graduated just the year before you got here, Alex Schuth, is a, uh, a guy. I know he's, he's the co-founder of Denali yep. Pharmaceuticals. And it's something very interesting about biotech, which is the founder, uh, you need a huge amount of capital yes. to get started. And so the, the formation details are often quite unusual mm-hmm. relative to I'm am a I'm a guy in a garage building an app. Right. So, talk a little bit about how you marshal the resources and what are the qualities of an entrepreneur to marshal such resources to be able to do something big like this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I, I do think it is different in biotech, just yeah. to give you a sense, uh, all up over the course of the last five plus years since we formed the company, we've I've raised more than a billion dollars of yeah. capital. Yeah. Uh, so, it is a different question right. than in, in other settings and in other industries. Uh, we started the company in a very unusual and different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this idea had been uh, ruminating within chop, and uh, Steve Altschler and I had discussed the uh, the fact that chop was interested in in finding novel and new ways to commercialize, I proposed to chop that they start the company alongside myself, Kathy, and some of the other scientists, and that that chop actually go one step further and actually put the sole investment in the company Wow, the initial the initial series a yeah. Investment yeah. was solely from Chop. Wow! And the concept that I pitched to him at the time was, as a hospital with a uh, a meaningful endowment, uh, they were investing in alternative investments like any portfolio manager does, and a portion of that was invested in multiple venture capital funds. In mm-hmm. fact, I think about a dozen. Oh, really? And so yeah. you they were exposed to that risk class mm-hmm. appropriately, mm-hmm. so with a small portion of their equity, a small portion of their overall portfolio. So why not take that same share? and apply it to an idea that you have disproportionate information around mm-hmm. and invest in your own, your own idea. And, and by the way, without, doing, without this, you would not get the same upside. And so when we started the company, CHOP actually had 80% uh, ownership between wow. its, its intellectual property and uh, as much, if not more so, the preferred stock they got for putting the initial seed money in. And that investment that they made in that round, and actually a Series B and even a portion of the IPO, was thirty five million dollars over the the initial years? Mm-hmm. That thirty five million dollars has turned into about a half a billion dollars wow. a return for Chop. Wow! So it was an it was an alternative way to do this. And why was why was that the idea? Well, at that moment in two thousand eleven, it was gene therapy as a technology was not necessarily in vogue, and so I looked around and said, who are the types of shareholders that have shown patience mm-hmm. and shown an an interest and a willingness to invest and have long term uh, commitment to this space, and there wasn't a long list. And Chop yeah. was one of them. Chop yeah. had been funding it in in a research context, but so the thought was, you should be patient. You would be patient because of what your track record showed. So let's look for that patient investor. We then turned around about six months after that initial Series A and did another Series B where we added the likes of T Rowe Price and mm-hmm. Wellington again, shareholders that tend to have very long term thinking because. They're investing money of people who have pensions or, or again, their orientation is long-term.
0: Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Jeff Marazzo, who's the CEO and co-founder of Spark Therapeutics. Um, Jeff, I wonder if you could—it's a hard question, but— there's a saying, you'd rather be lucky than good. Do you think this is a replicable strategy for the likes of CHOP, or is this a really extreme outcome for them?
1: Well, I think think it's a replicable strategy. I don't mean to say that the returns in absolute or percentage basis Mm -hmm. will look the same for every business. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think you're seeing a general trend within the life sciences space where you have large corporations who have, like within the pharmaceutical industry, that have incredible resources for sales and marketing, even doing drug development, but have have started over time to abandon more of their traditional discovery and research efforts and have looked to academia to do and supplement uh, part of that. Uh, that discovery work that they are essentially shaving off um, of their cost structures. And so uh, academia, over the course of the last couple of decades, has been generating a lot of this fundamental discovery and research there. And the question is, how do you pick out the one or the couple every some period of time that can then move its way into commercialization? And instead of handing that Academic discovery over to a, a pharmaceutical company or a venture capital firm. Uh, I think there is something to be said if the if that institution can find the right one or two picks to advance it further and generate you know more returns for them to reinvest mm-hmm. again on a percentage basis. I mean, this yeah. was an instance where I'm not saying that you'd see a five hundred million dollar on an absolute dollar basis return in every instance because you might have a, a a business with less risk. Less capital need, but could have a good return, right. and so and that could be also in the life sciences space. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, it's a great outcome, of course. And um, so you you mentioned partnerships. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about partnerships. So I noticed just you know poking around on your your website, it seems you have a few products or one product that you sell yourselves, commercialize yourself. Then you have a, a several partnerships. Talk a little bit about the decision you made to what you're going to do yourself and for what you're going to
1: rely on on partners. So what we ended up doing over the course of time was really trying to uh, assess at each stage of the company uh, what was critical for us to advance to that next step within the organization. So the first partnership we struck was with Pfizer. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, we had encouraging data in humans and people around the application of our technology to the retina. Mm -hmm. But the application of that same technology to the liver uh, had more chest questions and challenges to it. Yeah. Frankly, it had more to do with the immune system, the mm. human immune system, which as it turns out, your retina is what we call immunoprivileged. It's mm. essentially the immune system doesn't see as easily ah. to the retina as they do when you inject straight into the circulation. Mm. So we were there were more questions and more challenges around that. Uh, and so we had a a research project going on in a form of hemophilia called hemophilia B, which is about 20% of the hemophilia market. And we also had some ver- earlier research in hemophilia A, which is the other 80%. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we said, we're, we we want to de-risk the uh, development of this technology in the liver through a partnership with Pfizer that can partially fund that effort Uh, with non-dilutive money, with Mm. basically money that wouldn't be selling equity Mm. to do that. Um, And if it worked for hemophilia B, we would keep the rights to hemophilia A, which was 80% of the market. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what we did and what's transpired. That type of relationship as a private company, you speak to the specifics of biotech, when we went public, we had both data in the application of the technology to the retina, but then we had a partnership with Pfizer who, while it had more risk to it, was validating the fact that this may have applicability beyond the retina, and it provided validation that was supportive uh, of our initial public offering. So that was the case of one partnership. Yeah,
0: But let me just, Jeff, let me just pause there and make sure our listeners understand the big idea here. So the idea is you have a, a huge company like Pfizer, which has good cash flow and is diversified across lots of projects. They are in a better position to take risk on a particular commercial, a particular uh therapeutic area uh treatment um you for you guys taking a big slug of cash to de-risk this thing is a huge deal and so it's a win-win in some respects it uh, is so. There's always the chance it's not going to pan out, but that's a, whi- a risk that Pfizer is willing to take. That gives you the cash in the bank to go pursue some other opportunities simultaneously.
1: That's right. It just yeah. allows you to diversify. It's a capital allocation yeah. question. Yeah, and it turns out Pfizer was the leading had the leading market uh, share position in that disease mm-hmm. in hemophilia B. Mm-hmm. They were den- generating at that time about 750 million in sales. Uh, globally, for a product treating hemophilia B, now it was a chronically administered right. therapy, and what we were showing was the prospect, albeit with still risk and right. open questions, right. could you treat the disease with a single dose therapy that would eliminate the need for all those potentially eliminate the needs for all those chronic infusions and eliminate the risk of bleeds, which is what's inherent yeah. in this disease.
0: By the way, has that played out yet?
1: So what's played out is that we we conducted uh, a human uh, study, a first mm-hmm. in human study that you call phase one slash phase mm-hmm. two study. And that trial was has been very successful. The data has been really encouraging. We published it in the New England Journal of Medicine last mm-hmm. December. Mm-hmm. And earlier this summer, we finished that phase one, two study and have handed it over to Pfizer, who's now begun what is called a phase three study, which is the last study before you can seek to register the product. Yeah. And so it has worked out incredibly successfully for them. It has been advantageous for us because it's turned out with with uh, part of their dollars, um, and through that validation, we've been able to fund that work, prove that we could get this to w- the application of this to work in the liver, and but kept the upside around hemophilia, which is the other eighty percent of the market, and has allowed us to basically de-risk part of the application of this technology. So that's an example of one partnership. Yeah. And you have another. We have yeah. a second one with Novartis. Mm-hmm. And that was a very different situation, a very different set of circumstances. Uh, our first uh, product that was approved is called Luxterna. Luxterna was the first approved gene therapy for a genetic disease ever in the United States. It was approved in December of last year. Wow. Uh, we actually just received uh, a positive opinion from one of the European Uh, regulatory bodies last week, indicating their recommendation to the European body to approve it in Europe. But last December, we received approval in the United States and have started to market it um, as Spark in the United States. But when we looked around the entire globe and said, what's the way in which we could get this therapy fastest to patients, Mm -hmm. Uh, knowing all the other things that we had and the potential use of capital, but I would say just as importantly, management focus and energy and time of our people. We thought that the best use of resources was to focus our energy and efforts on trying to commercialize that in the United States, but find a strong partner. In this case, Novartis, I think, had either the first or the second leading position in all the ophthalmology business, had products in 100 plus countries, Mm. and we struck a relationship with them where they, upon approvals uh, uh, of the therapy outside the U.S., would then market it. I see. And so there it was, a, it was a question about, again, a capital allocation question, but more so about management focus and human resource mm-hmm. and human capital allocation uh, and and a way for us to get the strategic value of marketing a product ourselves, but do so in a defined region, but make sure that this product got to patients as quickly as it could outside the United mm-hmm. States.
0: All right, I want to I want to change the subject a little bit to you and your career path. So, uh, you you said you start out in in bioengineering, then systems engineering and econ, and then you got a Wharton MBA. So you're not a PhD or MD. Um, can you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of coming to a CEO role in a public biopharma company like Spark, uh, given your background? Right.
1: Yeah, so what's what's interesting, and I do have the the other pieces that I have a degree in public policy as well, which you can add on, and it also yeah. doesn't help the yeah, equation exactly. in terms yeah. of PhDs or MDs. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think what, and you should add one other element to it as well, which is that I also didn't have a traditional background from a drug development company. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what has that given me? It's given me the chance to largely look at things fresh and uh, ask questions often the question, why do we do things the way we do, or mm-hmm. why should we do it that mm-hmm. way? Why not, Why not? as we have a saying within the company, it's very simple, it's become the motto for the organization, we don't follow footsteps, we create the path. Mm-hmm. And that's very much a, a belief that I have, that we should challenge and think about how we do things differently as an organization. So that to some extent has has been freeing for me because I haven't been uh there has not been sort of a way that I saw that you have to do it in the past or I studied xyz in my thesis and this is the only thing you know this is this has to be the gospel because yeah. I wrote a whole thesis on yeah. it so I tend to be someone that that by doing that asks quite a bit of question a number of questions and really learns what I think is necessary to be able to integrate information across the various parts of the organization, but don't expect and shouldn't expect that I would be the expert in a particular area. So yeah. I've tried to hire people around me who have uh, way more expertise uh, in a function than me, and I work to ask the right questions to be able to triangulate or integrate what that piece of information in the research side of our organization means for our manufacturing group or commercial or whatever it might be. So that has been... Uh, the advantage from from that experience
0: well you're doing a great job thank you <laughs> so uh jeff we're out of time thanks so much for coming into the studio
1: thanks for having me carl it's great all right
0: so we can uh i'm just point our listeners to your website it's spark tx for spark therapeutics sparktx.com coming up karthik shridharan joins me to talk about how his company connect is helping small businesses connect with suppliers in an online marketplace. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.